forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I'm an anxious mess. Hey, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bi-con, bisexual icon, wink. And I love how you say, hello. <laughs> it's the same every time. <laughs> Thank you. I do a lot of like uh, repetitive cadence in this show <laughs> through the different That's true. segments. <laughs> That's true. It might be like, feel like home for listeners. I don't know. <laughs> I think so. I think uh, people like when you repeat the same phrases because then they can kind of I sometimes I'll do it along with the podcaster. A lot of times I'll listen to a podcast and it will go like, I'm Michael Hobbs. And then out loud, I'll go, I'm Michael Hobbs. No. What's that about? That's really weird. You're you're mimicking what you're hearing. Yeah, I'll mimic their names and I'll say them out loud. <laughs> oh, my God. I've revealed too much. This is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. And that's interesting because mentioning podcasts and podcast royalty, because we do have Chelsea Weber Smith on the show. I know. I'm so excited. We're going to be talking to them all about moral panics. Yeah. And how to conceptualize them, why they happen. It's really fascinating. Yeah. I think we should get like the roulette of podcast royalty like on the show. Like if we got Aubrey Gordon. No way. She wouldn't. What do you mean she wouldn't? We've tried. I've tried. We've tried. I put her on the list. We'll She's try more. Busy. She's very important. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try. Well, we'll try more. Okay. Good luck. <laughs> I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to do it. And later in the episode, we'll be talking all about unions and why they're having a moment and are so important. Oh, yeah. We're still on strike, baby. You're on double strike, right? I'm on now. double strike. Yeah. I'm in SAG. So I'm on double strike. I'm not in SAG, even though. I did visit everyone's screens years ago on a Payless commercial. It was actually non-union. And despite being played during some of the biggest network TV shows, I was only paid (laughs) $4,000. Okay. The Payless commercial is like such a piece of Just Between Us lore. Because I saw you. I was like kicked out of my apartment. I was living in a hotel and I saw your Payless commercial and I texted you. And that's one of the ways we started talking. Uh, Melissa's dying. (laughs) Melissa's dying. That makes sense. But before we could get to all of that, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means? Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Unknown. Ooh. Do you like that I said unknown instead of anonymous? It felt more menacing and, and like intriguing. Yeah, unknown and unknowable. Well, aren't we all? Not really. I'm kind of an open book. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So before I read this, I just want to give a trigger warning that we will be talking about rape and celebrity rape trials. So unknown writes, during the height of the pandemic, I, non-binary, had an argument with my good friend, male, who I had known for about 10 years at this point. To summarize, we were arguing about a high profile celebrity rape trial. Broadly speaking, he was in the camp of, quote, People's lives can be ruined by false allegations. And I was in the camp of, quote, people's lives can be ruined by being raped. Sure. 
I'm a CA slash SA survivor, which I told him as part of this argument. It's not the first time this topic has come up over the course of our friendship Uh and not the first time I felt really uncomfortable because I felt like with his unwavering support for the accused, he would probably side with them over a victim in his personal life. Mm -hmm. I have some examples of this that that he no doubt would completely disagree with. Mm. I'd always kind of push this feeling away as in every other respect, even when we disagree on quite important issues. I think he is a good, caring person who goes out of his way to help others. However, in this argument and in explaining my personal history with it, I felt completely triggered and unheard. Panic attacks, dissociative episode, the whole thing. After another conversation where we both tried to work through the hurt feelings, but ultimately ended up arguing again, I decided not to reach out to him any further. He did the same, and now we haven't spoken for a few years. Again, we have disagreed about lots of important things before, but this felt too close to home for me to ignore his words or what they suggested about his actions in the world. Mm -hmm. I still miss him, even though I think I was right to let go at the time. He's still good friends with my best friend. They dated for a long time, and I still occasionally interact with him online to like a post or congratulate on her project. I feel conflicted and unsure of how to move on. Well, I think you got to go with your gut. I think your gut was correct. I think people tell you who they are. And I think that you did what you needed to do for your own safety and your own mental safety, where whether that's mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, whatever. Um, so I think the way to move on is to just be like, I needed to cleanse my life of this energy. I needed to cleanse my when almost as part of your healing process from what what happened to you. Like you don't need someone around who will try to debate your lived experience. You can just make the choice for your, like you don't owe people that. You can just, sometimes for people, things are quote unquote objective and they accuse the person who's gone through the experience of being biased. But what it really is, is that you've gone through the experience. So I think that if it was setting back your healing, I think just think of it as like a step that you needed to take and you needed to get rid of in your life in order to be healthier. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard, especially in today's environment to to have like a clear guideline for how much you need to agree with another person to have a relationship with them. Correct. Yeah. Like that's a constant thing that I think so many of us are dealing with all the time. And I think the barometer for that really ranges. And it also ranges in like, what is your relationship to this person? So I think for a lot of times, maybe family will get a little Mm -hmm. more leeway that like you can disagree about more stuff. But hey, this is my one parent. This is my one sibling. I'm going to maybe allow for there to be more discrepancies between us and Mm -hmm. then just sort of like, you know, accept that that we're different in this way. But friendship is such a such a different thing in that we get to really pick our friends Mm -hmm. and we get to decide who gets to be our friend. I lean towards the kind of belief that like our friends should be a source of of good in our lives, Mm -hmm. like in that like they should be that we shouldn't have to be fighting for our existence and our friendships. And so I really like commend you for recognizing that like despite all the good that this person was bringing to you and maybe even to the world, the the cost was was too much for a friendship. Yeah. Look, the other thing is, is like we go through phases, right? We go through phases where how much something bothers us is going to change. And so maybe 
maybe now that you've had a few years, you feel like, oh, maybe I could tolerate being friends with someone who feels so differently about maybe this his thing opinions than me. have changed. Maybe his opinion has changed. So I'm not like of the mind that like if you're really missing this person, it's not worth, you know, reaching out. I, I actually think that reconnecting with old friends is a really great way to build your social circle instead of like starting from the ground zero with everyone that you meet. But at the same time, it's like if you do reach out to him and it seems like it's the same, that might just not be worth it. And yeah. And then it's really just about allowing for there to be grief that you will miss him. I mean, I miss a lot of people in my life, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that you can't still have a full great life. You know, like it's again that holding two things at once of like you're protecting yourself, but you're also probably going to feel grief around that. Do you think that they should? say to him, hey, when they reconnect, like, hey, one thing that really bugged me in our friendship was this. I'm wondering if you still feel these ways or like just get explicit with it instead of waiting for the topic to come up again. Yeah, I mean, it's again, like it's like how much you miss him, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you really miss him and you're like, this friendship had a huge value add to my life. I, I we still know some of the same people. Like, I think it's worth sort of saying like, hey, I know it's been a few years. Um, I think we can both kind of agree that our difference of opinion about this topic sort of made us drift apart. I just wanted to circle back because I know so much has changed in the zeitgeist. So much has changed about the ways that we talk about these things. And, you know, I was just wondering if if maybe you see my point of view more. And and if so, I would mm-hmm. really love to to get coffee and and to reconnect. Yeah. Yeah. But if not, then like I totally get that, too. And I hope you're doing well. Yeah. I also think there are certain topics that you can have difference of opinions on. And I think rape and sexual assault is a big one that you kind of can't. It's hard to like make that blanket of a statement, especially when it comes to, like, you know, certain people and family right. and whatever and in-laws and all sorts of things. But like, um, yeah, like the people that you let close to you, the people that you truly trust and feel seen with. Yeah, that's like a really pretty impossible thing to disagree on, especially if you're a survivor. If you're a survivor. Also, you know, it's funny. I had this this boyfriend a long time ago um, who was much older than me. And we would argue about sort of like feminist stuff, like get me getting catcalled or me getting different sexual harassment things that had happened to me. And he would always sort of argue it with me. And I remember thinking like, I'm telling you my lived experience. And your job is not to devil's advocate that. Mm-hmm. Like if somebody said an experience they had that I didn't have, I would be like, I'm so sorry. Right. Like, you know, like I would be like, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Like I maybe I don't have the best perspective. You know what I mean? Like it's he's talking as if like someone is about to come out and accuse him of rape and he needs to like get out ahead of it. Oh, interesting. I mean, I I, I don't know about that, but I, I do think that. People just view the world really differently. But what in what world would you say that to a survivor? Like somebody tells you they're like a child abuse, sexual assault survivor and you go, well, I just think like who who does that? I mean, look, I, I'm I don't understand a lot about how people think <laughs> and a lot about how people justify their actions and behavior. <laughs> like, I think that people have a really hard time if they have stated a strong opinion, feeling that they can change that opinion. Oh, my like, God. I think a lot of times it's almost not even about the opinion itself, but about like not being able to admit that they were wrong about something. Oh, my God. 
feeling the need to remain consistent about a topic despite what has been presented to them. You're right. Which is sucks. And I think is is I think a real sign of of intelligence and and kindness is the ability to change your opinion when right. presented with new information. But right. Unfortunately, such is not the the world that we are living in, as we'll see in our interview. Segment. I know it's relevant to our interview. <laughs> but yeah, I really you know, I, I think it's really up to you. I think you can reach out and sort of try to see, you know, maybe he has different feelings around this topic. Maybe he doesn't. I also think you can let it be and and just recognize that you're protecting yourself and that it sucks that this person has this gaping kind of hole in the way that they see the world. Yeah. But it's it's really hard and you're definitely not alone. And I mean, there are people that I'm like, they're not friends because I kind of get to be more particular with friends. But, you know, people in my life Mm -hmm. that like I have to interact with where I'm like, I don't agree with you about so many things. But I know what I, I can't start a fight every time I see right. you at a family gathering. <laughs> right. You just have to go. OK, so hopefully that was helpful. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to just between us pod at gmail dot com. That's just between us pod at gmail dot com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Chelsea Weber Smith, which we've just been Shouting from the rooftops this whole time, so stay tuned. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Chelsea Weber-Smith, the host of American Hysteria, a podcast that explores how fantastical thinking, moral panics, urban legends, crazes, hoaxes, and national misunderstandings have shaped our culture. Chelsea is a non-binary poet and comedian who is a frequent guest on but You're Wrong About. <laughs> Hello. Hello. I am just thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my. We are thrilled. You're podcast royalty. Oh, well, that's so nice. I didn't know. I'll accept it. <laughs> it's so funny. We all have our own bubbles where there's certain people who are like, well, they would never speak to me. You oh, my know? gosh. Well, I feel that way about you guys. So it's perfect. <laughs> it is a real parasocial <laughs> happening right now. Yeah, it's, but it's it's uh, mutual. <laughs> oh, thank you. So I'd love to just like dive in in a broad way. Can you sort of just like explain what is a moral panic and why we keep having them? <laughs> sure. I, yes, absolutely. So a moral panic happens usually when there's some kind of like underlying cultural, political anxiety that doesn't have an expression yet. And so we find what are called folk devils. The folk devil will then stand in for uh, a bigger issue. So a great example we like to use is stranger danger um, and how in the 90s, especially the 80s as well, we were terrified and certain that every child in the suburbs was going to get kidnapped by a guy in a white van, right? And so what was really happening there is that we were, for the first time, exploring the ideas of child abuse and realizing that these different things actually happen and wanting to talk about it, but then feeling like, well, how do we address the truth of this situation that Most often children are in danger in their own homes or in their like small circles. So, oh, my gosh, that's way too hard to try to wrap your head around and to actually 
make changes about because it's it's so much more complicated than just saying the threat is this singular monster, this folk devil that, you know, is to blame. That way we sort of absolve ourselves of responsibility. And these are not things that are happening necessarily on a conscious level. Mm -hmm. They're just like, you know, we see panics right now around, of course, trans people drag. And I think it remains to be seen exactly what we are panicking about, perhaps just the changing gender dynamics and power and uh, how that is frightening to many people. And instead of addressing sort of what that means and what that can mean, uh, what that means about masculinity and femininity, uh, we decide to panic and focus all of our energy on this kind of totem, right? This folk double of the drag queen in this instance. And of course, then it can also be harnessed and also created by people in power, politicians, uh, outrage, the outrage industry uh, in order to make money and continue that cycle of outrage, fear, anger um, until they make a ton of money and take political control. So it's definitely a tool and it's definitely something that can affect anybody at any time. And we never really know when a moral panic is happening necessarily. It's something you kind of have to look back on, which makes it really complicated. But the idea is to notice those patterns so that when it is happening at the time, even if you can't stop a wave of like, you know, it's very hard to combat whether they be moral panics on the left or right, because they both exist. And it's hard to know in that moment if you're experiencing a moral panic. And it's certainly very hard to fight against it because sometimes you're fighting against your own team, right? Uh, Which can be really hard and complicated. Uh, It's just a really great lens to look through when we're trying to deal with outrage culture because it kind of is at the heart of it. Is this something that, because your podcast is called American Hysteria, is this something that is kind of uniquely American? No, not at all. Um, it's 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 human. Um, <laughs> perhaps like societal scapegoating is is universal for sure. Um, but we like to just focus on what's happening here, which often spreads to other places or is influenced by other places. Like we had a big panic about rockers and mods, and you know the idea that rock music was somehow corrupting the youth. You know, we kind of imported that from. England. So, you know, England's definitely our moral panic, pal. Um, But yeah, you see it all over in every country. It has its own panics based on its culture, for sure. And a lot of them are the same, as we see kind of across certain cultures when the same folk devil is coming up. And then that's kind of reinforcing it to see it in other countries. We're like, oh, maybe this this folk devil really is a threat since all these people are, are freaked out about it. Maybe I should join up with that. How do these ultimately come to an end? I mean, is it like there's a moment of reveal, oh, we were all worrying about nothing? Or is it just it slowly fades from the zeitgeist with some holdovers who are still shouting about, you know, satanic cults abducting children? Yeah, I was going to say, like, I don't think the satanic panic, which is the ultimate moral panic, certainly. I'm glad you brought it up. You know, the idea that satanic cults are kidnapping and sacrificing children or even that satanic cults exist in this national (laughs) network that is connected to the government and the Illuminati. I think it generally fades. You know, we had that like hard through the 80s and 90s. In 1999, when Columbine happened, we had like a goth panic, right? So that kind of like moved along the satanic panic and gave us a new villain to look at, the goth, for a bit. 
And then it did kind of fade out. And I think our focus became very much after 2001, uh, after September 11th, our folk devils became people from Muslim countries, right? And and that was like (laughs) Democrats, Republicans, everybody's having these like racist reactions to to folks who otherwise have absolutely no danger attached to them, right? So, I mean, right now the satanic panic is like in full swing again, right? Mm -hmm. It's like everything's satanic. Queer people are satanic. Disney is satanic. So I think it comes in cycles, but I think the satanic panic itself never leaves because Christianity is the, unfortunately, right, is the structure upon which America, as we know it, was built, colonized America. So it's like always going to be the devil is always going to like run through everything Mm -hmm. we do. But I think I think the fear of the devil swells and fades. And and sometimes, you know, as in the case of the satanic panic, we had feminists believing it just as much as we had conservatives, rad femmes, not unlike kind of what we see today with that union of exclusionary feminism with conservative politics. It's kind of the same thing. So the devil, (laughs) the devil comes in many forms for sure. Yeah, I mean, something I've been working on is like how to have empathy for these people that have these horrible beliefs and that are so angry about trans people existing and wanting to like make them not exist. And a question I have is, one, should I even bother to have empathy for these people? (laughs) And then two is like, through the lens of them being kind of brainwashed into these moral panics, is that sort of like a way to understand how they get to be so hateful because they are being exploited, their fears being exploited by these larger forces? Yes. I mean, to me, that's the way that I move through the world is like trying to find empathy. And something we like to say at American Hysteria is empathy is not endorsement mm. and empathy can be involuntary. I think an example for me of that is we did an episode on the Westboro Baptist Church, right? So you go in being like, oh, like, ugh, I hate these people. And of course, you leave still feeling that way. But to like truly go into their like the minutia of their history and their beliefs and understanding how they've come to these conclusions. And also, as you mentioned, sort of the brainwashing that happened in that family. You know, it, it, it really changes the picture. I don't know exactly what to do with that, except that the better that you understand those who have conflicting beliefs that are being put into action, the more you understand them, the more hope I think there is to get through to them because generally it's hard to get through to someone who's already kind of in an obstinate place by, you know, by insulting them or being angry at them, which to me is not something that you shouldn't do. Like, I I think there are many tactics. I think there are many ways. I think pressure and shame can be important parts of change, but on kind of like, even like a grassroots level, you kind of, you kind of got to be human to human a little bit. And I do have I do have a lot of empathy for people who fall for conspiracy theories and these moral panics because yeah, there is a incredible industry around outrage and those are the people I do think it is a bit of a like let's punch up situation where you know, a lot of people are believing these things, but a lot of those people are disenfranchised in their own ways and are struggling in ways that we don't see and we don't understand. Again, it's not an excuse, but 
who is holding the power here, who is directing these things, you know, because there is a concerted, like, I might not believe in the Illuminati, but I do believe in concerted efforts by groups of people to get out certain messaging to then reach their political aims by mobilizing large amounts of people through fear. And, you know, that's people like Matt Walsh, that's people, Tim Poole, you know, these, these guys who are making a ton of money by getting clicks mm -hmm. through saying the most inflammatory stuff they can. Politicians who are trying to further certain agendas and make money, let's be clear, right? Those are the people that I personally like to focus on. Mm -hmm. And then I like to try to understand those who don't actually hold a ton of institutional power. Yeah, I think for those types of people, it's about control because life is so scary and life is so out of control and they don't have, you know, the capacity to control whether their spouse is abusing their children, but they do have the capacity or ability to be like, hey, don't pick up a water bottle from the car, from the front of the car, because that's how you get human trafficked, which I just heard Sarah Marshall talk about on Behind the Bastards. But yeah, it's very... What is that? Okay, it's this thing. It, it, the episode is great. You should check it out. But it's this thing where that you get in your car in a parking lot and there's a water bottle on the hood of the car. And you go, that's weird. And you get out of your car to grab the water bottle. And that's so that the kidnapper, you get out of the car, the kidnapper grabs you. Why didn't they just grab you when you were getting right? Into so the that car? is sort of part of it. <laughs> and like, I remember, you know, I remember Stranger Danger hugely in like the 80s oh, yeah. and 90s where, you know, my mom took me and my sister and put us in the back of the trunk of the car and taught us how to kick the taillight out of a car so we could oh, reach our yeah. hand through. And if we were kidnapped, someone could see us. And there was like all kinds of stuff like that. And, you know, I grew up actually like in the town where Adam Walsh was was taken. Whoa. So I, I, I was uh, that was 86. I was born in 88. So I grew up Is that Florida. Yeah. That where Hollywood, Florida, yeah. the, yeah, the Hollywood, mall Florida, that we yeah. would go to as kids. That's where he got taken. No like, way. It was like wow. in my town. So when I was born, what? can you explain who that is? Adam Walsh was a six year old boy who was kidnapped, stranger kidnapped from a mall like his uh, basically the most horrendous story you can hear of where the mom turned a blind eye for a second. And he was gone. And it was a huge national news story. John Walsh became the host of America's Most Wanted, I think, based off of how how crazy the story was and how how much it became a sensation. He is a little white boy. He was taken stranger dangerly. So it was a huge story. And so I was born two years after that happened. So everyone in my town was like, on high fucking alert, which is kind of interesting to me because it, 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 at least for my story, highlights what you talk about a lot, which is like, my dad was an addict and an alcoholic. Like the call was coming from inside the house. Yeah. But because of that story of Adam Walsh, the whole town was so freaked out about if a stranger was going to grab your kid that nobody bothered to like look into what was going on in anyone's homes. And I think on a non-structural level, I think for these disenfranchised people you're talking about, individual people you're talking about, because I'm not from a town of rich people, like it is this thing where you feel so out of control. You have this child or you have this belief or you have you can't control anything that happens to them. So you're like a drag queen's grooming them or like if they, you know, now because of the Internet, it's like they have too much access to things online. 
So anything could happen. They could see a gay and then be gay, you know? And it's like an extension of like, we didn't have the internet, but it was like this thing where they, it was like, you're going to get kidnapped at the mall. Yeah. And it's just because having a child is scary. It's so scary. And it's like, it's why I like, I don't blame people for moral panicking because especially like in your town, you have this, I mean, I would say Adam Walsh was like the example of a missing child that actually happened because this was actually happening. It was just happening at a rate where, you know, if you're in the suburbs, I think I read a statistic that if you were a kid, you could stand on the street and it would take like 7,000 years or something for you to actually, it could have even been like 700,000, don't quote me, but it's, <laughs> it would take a very long time statistically, whereas statistically it would take very little time, you know, 90% of the time your your kid is in danger in your close circle, um, again, as we said. So it's like, I don't really blame people for that or for displacing their fears because, I mean, we all displace our fears. It's just some of us have had, you know, access to or sought out different forms of therapy or uh, even just like different kinds of books to read to educate ourselves about like what the dangers really are, you know, driving in a car, right? Like you fly on a plane and I'm terrified on planes, but but statistically, I am, you know, a gazillion times more likely to die driving to the airport. Mm-hmm. But we just can't like fully click into what we're really supposed to be afraid of. And so much of that is like just a biological issue with like how our brains process threats in a modern world. Like, you know, you're you're dropping you're dropping a very primitive being all in all of us. Like we're you're dropping someone who has the same brain really that we had thousands of years ago now and we're supposed to process the modern world and so so that's part of why all these like weird things happen and these weird stories are latched onto because we are trying to figure this out not only as people and part of a culture and community but as a you know as a reflexive brain of a primate actually yeah. you know so a lot of weird things are going to happen and people aren't always in control. And that goes for us as well as everyone else. And uh, so I I do have empathy for that. And I think that's a really important thing to continue to consider that we don't really is, is what is actually happening on the most basic level in our brains that is causing us to have the beliefs that we do. I know you mentioned earlier that it can be hard to understand a moral panic is happening until afterwards, but it also feels like this obsession with, with trans people is a moral panic that we're currently living in. Does it feel different that like this one is like pretty obvious as it's happening? And I, I do think that the internet probably is helping that, right? Because a lot of the moral panics that I study happened in the 90s or they happened in the 70s, right? So it's just a different structure. Like in the 90s, information moral panics were spread through what folklorists call facts lore, which I love, which maybe you remember like, parents faxing each other like don't let your kids wear red or blue because the gang colors will get them shot but you know i think i do think the internet has given us just so much more information and context for things and i think when you are the folk devil it's a lot easier to tell right. when more panics happening um where everyone else kind of has a a different type of experience it's maybe more analytical where they're like 
what are the pros and cons of this where the rest of us are like, we're in danger mm. and I see where this is leading and I know enough about like the dangers of scapegoating and what can really happen that I'm not going to like always be able to just like, hmm, hmm, you know, like what, mm-hmm. what do I think about this? You know, it's just different when you are the the target of the moral panic. I think it's, it's always going to be easier to to see what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah. What has that been like for you to be going from more just like a historical outlook to like now you're part of the the people that are being attacked currently? Well, you know, I grew up, I came out when I was 17. This was when Bush was still president, when he was running on a platform of anti-gay, you know, uh, traditional marriage. And yeah. And so I think I grew up already experiencing that. And of course, it like kept me from coming out to a lot of people. Eventually, you know, I would and just sort of take that experience and and try to learn how to not let people affect me. That was like a a big practice I had is like when people said homophobic or, you know, back then it was like, you're not really gay is the one I got quite a bit. It's like when guys were hitting on me or whatever, like, you're not really gay or, you know, you should be with me because it's natural for a man and, you know, just like gross dudes. But I like got into the practice of like letting things roll off of me, which is like not good or bad. It's just like what I did to get by. And so I think I like approach this and I have a little bit of like the ability to have a distance because that was a necessary part of my development in my brain. But nonetheless, it's like I get really scared Mm -hmm. and I get really sad and I yeah, I get afraid of what I know to be the steps that things take when there's a, a moral panic serious enough to end up harming that group of people. And luckily with gay marriage, you know, we were able to kind of like that happened. OK, America didn't crumble. Slowly we come to accept that there are gay people and that it's not, a, you know, it's not the end of the world for there to be marriage. Whereas right now people are like acting like it's the end of the world because trans people exist, right? And because somebody drank a Bud Light who's trans. It's like, you know, it's, and so what we're going to do is we're going to take our AK-47s and whatever the gun's called. We're going to take our automatic rifles and just destroy cases of beer, which are very clearly a stand-in for something else. And I think all of us felt that when it was like, okay, so what does that mean? What's that symbolizing to you? And what does that mean about what you'd really like to do? And so, yeah, I've been I've been scared and I've been looking for the right ways to move forward. And I really I think that's the other really hard part in a moral panic is it feels like this wave, this like giant, like impossible wave that's just crashing over you. And, you know, you're like punching the ocean or something. It just feels so hard to even combat. But yeah, so I think it's like trying to focus on caring about one another and like supporting one another is something I really am trying to focus on because I'm not exactly sure how to how to change the minds of people who are this um, this kind of far gone. Yeah. You know, I think it is I think it's causing a a backslide into other moral panics too. Like suddenly anti-Semitism's back on the rise. Suddenly like gay marriage is up for debate or like, you know, Clarence Thomas is like, what about interracial marriage? Like it's, it's sliding back into these older panics. It is. And I, I do 
strongly believe that it's a a pendulum. Mm-hmm. Like our culture swings in a pendulum. And like we got gay marriage, right? We got we had a liberal government. We had Obama. We had, you know, of course, many issues still sure. there. But in in terms of the greater culture, like it's clear that for a little while there, we kind of held the the cultural enough cultural power to frighten the other side. Right. And so the pendulum then swings back to traditional rules placed upon society. We can look at the 70s. Right. We can look at how the the 70s were wild. You know, it was like the beginning of porn. It was the gay rights movement. It was second wave feminism. It was all of these things. Free love. (laughs) It was just stuff that was like it was so um, different from anything that had happened before. You know, we can look back to like 50s, 60s. It was extremely conservative. Then we swing back to the 70s and we're like, we're going to go so hard in like our exploration that's going to scare, you know, the more conservative folks. Then we're going to swing back in the 80s to a hyper conservative Reagan era where everything is a panic. You know, we're panicking about drugs. We're panicking about strangers. We're panicking about TV. We're panicking about music. Music, absolutely. Satan is ever-present in an evangelical government, right? So crime, too. We're panicking about crime. And and Reagan really harnessed that the way that folks are harnessing the panics that we have now to to basically trick folks into thinking they're in, in constant danger. And so, yeah, I think we're Right now, I think we have swung back and we're like in the middle. We're not we haven't swung all the way, but we're in that battleground moment where the two cultures are like just, you know, at each other's throats because I don't know, there's a battle for cultural power. Like we don't have as much power over politics, unfortunately, because it's like 90 something percent Christian, you know, men or whatever. And so it's it's just not what, but what we can work through, right, and what we're accused of doing, I guess, is helping to design the culture that we all live in. And so, yeah, I think we're just really riding that pendulum right now. And I don't know where it will go, but I do understand what's happening, I think. I always wonder, like, if there were more social services, if people weren't struggling so hard to survive, would there be less moral panic? Mm. <laughs> I mean, I would like to believe that to be true. Religion makes that hard Mm. because I really I really try to study biblical history. That's like a big nerd point for me is just like, okay, this literally the foundation of our culture is this book. Right. And it has its historical context. It has like a very rich history. But even when you do provide services, you still have like this underlying strongly enforced belief structure. So I think that that would be a problem, but I can't say it would hurt. You know, I think it would absolutely help. And even if it didn't help, we'd still want it anyway. Yeah. So, you know, but I, I it is a it it has to be related to disenfranchisement. It has to be related to to the fears that you have about your own life and you're like I don't know how to worry anymore about just like staying alive under capitalism. So I need to like externalize that fear and say, okay. And this is another thing I think that's so important to understand about conspiracy theories is like how frightening it is to have nothing in control and to live in chaos, which we do unless you believe in God. We live in like an unstructured, chaotic universe 
and nobody really knows what they're doing. But if you believe that the government has this like perfect plan and everything is executed in this particular way to get these particular results, it's like, okay, I can fight that. Like I can beat that. I can drain that swamp and my life is going to, I'm going to be a king. You know, if I drain that swamp, everything's going to be great. And we're going to like reign under God for eternity. Right. You get, that's like a great story to tell yourself. Like that would be nice in a way to believe it's like you're, you know, you become this superhero when really maybe your own personal life is so difficult, complicated, confusing, and you like have no idea how you're going to fix it. You have no idea how you're going to get by then, you know, it's a lot more convenient to believe that there is some structure, even if that structure is scary, then absolutely no structure at all. So I do really think that that's part of why these stories are so almost impossible to get rid of. unless maybe, like you said, we create better conditions so that people don't need to project outward as much because they can say, I have what I need. So what do I need to be scared of? We're going to take a quick break for commercials and we'll be right back with our guest. We're back. You talked about crime stuff in the 90s. And this is something that I we were talking about on my other podcast, The New Guys, because it's a trans-focused podcast. And we were talking about how this dovetails with criminalization in some ways, because it was like, drugs are the enemy. So let's put those people in jail. Satanic panic is the enemy. So let's put all these people in jail who didn't actually do anything. And then, you know, criminalizing gender-affirming care, criminalizing getting gender-affirming care for your kids criminalizing all of these these behaviors, which then like leads to like, well, they broke the law. Like, oh, this trans person, like, Mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with trans people, but these trans people broke the law, which then like, I think allows people to feel good about like, now they're in prison. And like, I always think that these panics somehow, I'm not smart enough to figure out how quite yet, but I feel like these panics somehow always end up in like increased criminalization so that people can go, well, at least I'm not a criminal. But like people like me and yeah. you, Chelsea, like in certain areas, we are criminals. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> it's really bizarre. It's like I may be a criminal, but not that way. <laughs> yeah. We're just like, I mean, Allison has asked this on our YouTube show. What even is a criminal? Yeah. I mean, really? Right. Like it's it's criminalizing these things that then we're like, well, we'll just shove them into prison and we'll feel good about it. And, you know, I think that in addition to like criminalization, something that's really been freaking me out is like hearing the the co-opting language around mental health. And suddenly folks who are anti-trans are all about mental right. health. And they're like, these people are mentally ill. They're mentally ill. They're mentally ill. And that's what I'm more scared of is the idea, like instead of like these people are criminals, like these people are quote unquote insane and they need to be like institutionalized. Correct. Like that's, that's the kind school, of baby. narrative... It's old school. It is. And that's more what like there's absolutely a history of criminalizing homosexuality, cross-dressing. We're working on a drag series right now. So we're going back to like the 1500s. And there's panics all the time about this kind of thing um, throughout throughout the centuries. Yeah, I think there's also that narrative of like we're in the DSM as people who are deviant and pathologically damaged in some way. So I think that that's another concern that I have and and feels like the same thing that you're saying, just a, a different 
option for incarceration of some kind, right? And, and separating out this element from society. Like if we disappear, suddenly this will become a utopia because we are what is taking away the American dream somehow, or we are what is ruining the family, the American family. We are depopulating the greatest nation on earth, you know, whatever, whatever you want to go with. And, and there's that idea, which of course is absolutely terrifying because we've seen this in like fascist situations throughout time. Like, okay, we remove this element um, and you get the people to believe that, that once that happens, they'll be a better life. America will be great again, whatever you want to, whatever you want to say. Yeah, I mean, me and Allison are Jewish. We can just say that this is what they did yeah. to Jews in the Holocaust. It's the same yeah. exact tactics. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's like, I, I read a lot of World War II stuff too. And because I think that that's a very important thing to understand as well. I see the steps, you know, I see the, and I don't, I, I it's like, I don't want to create panic, but I do panic right, of course. <laughs> on my own sort of about, yeah. And I don't think it's uh, irrational either to see the, the movement toward something that could be very, very, very dangerous. That's such an interesting point because I feel like, like all these conservatives are allowed to panic about <laughs> people being trans but then yeah. if a liberal is like guys we should be freaking out about yeah. this everyone's like calm down it'll be fine yeah. <laughs> like yeah. exactly. we're not allowed to panic about the panics that yeah. are happening i was gonna say the same thing about like abortion right like like this control of women's bodies like we're not allowed to panic about being like uh you're gonna make us go to jail for having a miscarriage and then like they're allowed yeah. to panic by being like you're killing babies and it's like, yeah. OK, I'm yeah. sorry. So so you're allowed to freak out on your opinion and I'm not allowed to freak out on my opinion, which, by the way, is what's actually happening. Right. Yeah. You're allowed to freak out about something you made up at Target, like something that doesn't even <laughs> exist at Target. Um, but, or what about the actual moral panic yeah. of of school shootings or shootings? You know what I mean? Like we're not allowed we're not mm -hmm. allowed to freak out about that because we don't understand guns and we're not we're we're doing a lumping all this in blah 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 but like five people from a muslim country do a terrorist attack and all muslim people like by this logic all white men should be we should panic about white men oh yeah but we're not gonna do that are we yeah i often like cite the statistic that like those who abuse children are most often married men. right so it's like you know like we need to get rid of all dads right it's like no dads. <laughs> no dads in America. Because it's like you can do that for any group of people, but we just it, it's a lot easier to do it to a group of people that already has anxiety for us, especially like when you think about gender as power dynamic. And, and we see that again and again, like feminist movements. Then after that, we have the backlash mm -hmm. to a feminist movement. Now, a lot of that has to do with like in my opinion, the the panic around the hierarchy changing and the power dynamics changing, right? So like men can see, oh, gender is an unstable category, which means that my power is unstable. And that even again, like these aren't things that are necessarily happening on a mm -hmm. conscious level for people. They're just like reactions to their own fear of losing power. And a lot of times that's losing the small amount of power they have, not that they should keep that type of power, but perhaps they deserve to be empowered in another way. So they're not seeking power through, well, I'm a man and my birthright as a man is to have X, Y, and Z, and I don't have yeah. that. So now I'm going to 
panic or, you know, panic isn't even the right word because it's like outrage almost to me. I think outrage is a word that should be used a lot because it's such a potent tool and and it's completely universal. We all sometimes our outrage is totally warranted. I've gotten outraged about things that later turn out to be moral panics mm. on my own side of the spectrum. You know, it's Was like it that people are putting cheese on uh, your your windshield and making you get out of your car so they can kidnap you. Yeah, I definitely fell for that one. <laughs> uh, no, I the one I remember. And this is so weird because it's like there were a lot of like panics around people just doing evil for evil's mm-hmm. sake, you know, and, and in one of them was like this is also like. Yeah, this is like, ugh, I hate this. But um, people, the idea in the 90s that a man would be hiding under your car at the mall yes. and would like slash your Achilles heel. <laughs> it's like, it's horrible. It's a horrible thing. But yeah, we had those in the 90s too. Like at the mall, someone's going to slash your ankles. I was it- <laughs> led to believe that I would be constantly accidentally sitting on needles. I was oh, led yeah, to believe big one. that one of the top problems I would face as an adult is constantly accidentally sitting on needles. On like a hypodermic yes. needle. needle. And to kind of like our whole conversation, that panic came out of the AIDS right. crisis. And what it was is like people were like, gay people who are just evil, just like that's what Pat Robertson said. Pat Robertson said that gay people with AIDS were shaking hands with a ring that had a little, um, a little yes, needle and it would give it. their blood. And then you shook hands and it would give you HIV. That was like what gay people were doing. And when he was asked, like, why? He was just like, well, that's just what they do. Like, they're just <laughs> Give evil. people AIDS, question mark, question mark, fun, question mark, question mark, profit? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no (laughs) it's the same with the Halloween candy panic, um, which is also a great like example of a moral panic that has never died, probably will never die. There has never been a proven instance of somebody dying from poison Halloween candy, nor has there ever really been an instance of a stranger putting poison or whatever needles into candy. It's just like a story that developed because one dad ended up poisoning their kid with pixie sticks because they wanted to get an insurance payout and then they blamed it on a stranger that's all it took and now this story has like never ever left us that panic is interesting because it does have this like they are just evil it's like okay so a guy in your neighborhood by the way is poisoning kids for what they're not gonna like if they're like some kind of serial killer they're not gonna like see it's like, what are you getting out of this just pure evil act that you're not even yeah. gaining, like whatever scary murderer gets from this type of crime, you know, and that's such a trope of just like evil for evil's mm-hmm. sake. And when someone's doing something evil for evil's sake it does happen. It's a very small amount of like serial killers, perhaps that like are just their only motivation is some kind of like evil. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that that you can find that in this. And and I do think what's so interesting about that is is the same year that that Halloween candy panic happened or right around that time was the Tylenol. Murders. Yes. Do you guys know about mm-hmm. those? And so in that instance, somebody was kind of doing that, right? It was like, some people think it was Ted Kaczynski, but that's probably a conspiracy theory. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's like, that was like a crime where people were putting cyanide tablets in Tylenol bottles and putting them back on the shelf, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And some people were killed by that. And that's like, that's really scary. So like from that, 
it makes sense that we're going to like start panicking about that. And there was also a big panic about needles in Pepsis. But then, you know, they have the video footage of like one of the main ones, like opening the Pepsi in the store, putting the needle in, closing it, opening it. Ah, you know, and so <laughs> there's just like it's a great way for people to get attention. And a lot of people want attention. So I think these things come from grains of truth. They come from these moments of terror, like the Tylenol murders. Everybody knows about the Tylenol murders. I mean, the cops were driving through Chicago with like with loudspeakers saying, don't take Tylenol. <laughs> like everybody's dying from Tylenol. So like that's a scarring experience. The Adam Walsh kidnapping is a scarring experience. So it's like we're going to create stories around that. And that's going to like inform the way that we process other things that we fear, you know, is like harmful as it is. It's not it's understandable, too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, this has been so fascinating so and, and kind of terrifying. But now <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd love to invite you to play a, a play game show that is also kind of terrifying. All right. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so hypotheticals is a game where you and Gabe will be my contestants. I'll give you a series of hypothetical questions. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then you tell me what you would do in that situation. And I pick uh, my favorite answer. All right, let's do it. I feel like Chelsea's <laughs> going to win, but it's fine. That's OK. You don't I really need to don't. win. I mean, today, maybe. I but... need the win, Gabe. I need the win. <laughs> wow, Allison, pitting trans non-binary people against each other. As a cis Canceled. woman. <laughs> Cancel her. Well, it, I, it was inevitable <laughs> that I would put my foot in my mouth in some way. <laughs> um, okay, so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Ooh. Your partner of 12 years admits that they have had a flirty relationship with the barista at the coffee shop by their office for the last four Whoa. years. They thought it was all innocent, but then they ran into the barista while they were having a smoke break in the alley. And the barista pushed them against the wall and passionately kissed them before giving them their number, which they have not called. Would you stay with this cheater? Wow, good for this barista. <laughs> I think I would stay. They didn't really cheat. That's that they, they got kissed. You know what I mean? Someone kissed them and they didn't call and they told me right away. So honestly, it's kind of just a fun story. I think it's fun, too. Yeah. I mean, I generally live a more open lifestyle in my relationship. So I think I I think I'd be like, damn, good for you. And, you know, there if there's not a lying situation, I mean, flirting, flirt away. Go at it. Have yeah. fun. I don't think I would be mad. I, I, I think if they told me, yeah, I would say fun story. The ki The kissing lasted for 20 mm. seconds. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Are they, is this the coffee shop they go, they stop there on their way to work? Yeah. So I feel like if you're on your way to work, like you need a little pick me up. You need a, a little flirt <laughs> yeah. with the barista. A like flat. get a little excitement in your day before you go to your boring job. Like, I think like, I think like, you know what? They needed it. I get it. You got a little attention, put a little pep in your step, head into your job working. I don't know. Why did I think at like a paperclip factory? Whatever, somewhere boring. <laughs> and then and then it's like, yeah, good for you. I have a question. What would you want them to do moving forward with this barista? Can they still go to the coffee shop? Yes. <laughs> yeah, but they would have to be like, here's my situation. Like they would have to be like, hey, I have a partner, actually. Yeah. And like, you know, yeah. this. I, I'm sure, you know, sometimes I, I I'm open too, and sometimes you you flirt with someone and then you're like things are going well. And then you're like, I'm I'm open and I have a partner. And then they're sort of like, oh, I'm not Polly. Like, I don't want to get involved. Right. You got to give them that chance. 
Yeah, and they should know. Everyone should know. Everybody should know what's going on. And if everybody knows what's going on and agrees to the terms and conditions, then have yourself a little flirt. Get your pick me up. If they break up, do (laughs) I go to this coffee shop too? No. Okay, because then if they break up and then it's my favorite coffee shop, it's like you kind of fuck this for me. Yeah, that's that is the most important consideration. (laughs) I say as I drink Starbucks. (laughs) Hey, they could be at Starbucks. You're from Seattle. You (laughs) get it. I do. I do. Okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? You learn that your child, 16, has been running an internet scam that charges people for concert tickets without ever sending them the tickets. Whoa. They have made $50,000 off this illegal scheme when you figure it out. Instead of turning them into the police, you make them donate all the money to their rival high school cheerleaders fund. This is especially painful because they are a cheerleader for their high school and that other team is their like mortal enemies. Are you a terrible parent? What in the bring it on? Wow. <laughs> what in the but we're going to go to jail because once it gets figured out, we're going to jail. What about taxes? Well, that, yeah. these are all the questions. Are you terrible? Yeah, parent? bad, bad parents. Bad parenting. For sure. Because like that does not guarantee. If anything, that's evidence. Right, exactly. Where'd you get that $50,000? Cheerleaders, where did this come from? (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to say bad parenting. I don't like scams involving concert tickets because these people are excited. They want to go see the band. They're they're fans of something. They love something. No, if you're going to scam like people who are shitty, scam people who are shitty. Like if you were if you were <laughs> yeah, scamming you like exclusively cops or something, but like if you're scamming like people who just want to go to concerts, that's so heartbreaking. I don't like that. I don't like it either. Yeah. I mean, a lesson needs to be learned of some kind, but I think that lesson is like making them repay all the people. I would buy them tickets to their absolute favorite concert tickets and I would print them out and then I would send them to the concert with their friend, with their crush. And then the tickets would be fake. Oh, yeah. Lesson learned, bitch. Oh, yeah. Lesson learned. Oh yeah. God. You want to do that again? Thanks. That's some good parenting. I like it. Well, I, I, like it. I think the good parenting route is maybe more the return the money to the people. But All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Fine. No one wants my parenting book. <laughs> okay. Our final game. Would you forgive this liar? You are in grad school with one of your best friends. You're currently in a really hard class together and you both keep commiserating over how badly you're doing. After getting back a midterm, you tell your friend you got a 75 and they tell you they got a 79. But one day you see their grades on their computer and they actually got a 97 and have clearly been lying to you the whole time about how hard the class is for them. Would you forgive this liar? So... They're lying to make me feel better, right? About my struggle. Yeah. Okay. It seems like it. I mean, yeah, I'd forgive them. Yeah, I don't know. I would just like think it was kind of weird. But <laughs> so you don't need to, you don't need to pity me. It's okay. But yeah, I mean, I don't think it's like, it seems like it was a lie out of like a, a decent place, not a lie out of, uh, out of harm. I think Gabe is going to say, or... Can I guess you know what, what, what am I worried say? about? <laughs> what? You're worried about looking foolish. No. My question <laughs> was, they're selfish. Because why weren't they tutoring me then? 
whoa oh, why if they're so fucking good at this true. class and i have questions and i'm doing poorly doesn't help me if you go yeah i don't know it either bitch tutor me oh that's a good point so true and answer like, my questions yeah yeah and was it like actually not to make them feel better maybe it was like because they don't want to tutor you <laughs> like oh i'm doing bad too <laughs> yeah they're like i'm tired of answering your goddamn questions i'm tired of every yeah. fucking week you turning to me and going what did he just say because then eventually i started going <laughs> i don't know either because i can't teach you the class and i understand yeah. that about myself yeah yep we don't have enough information i mean maybe i'm being super annoying <laughs> and they just like, i usually assume that it's it. because i'm being super annoying <laughs> yeah it's sort yeah, of my thing really uh but yeah also that's mean like you you had the resources yeah. to help me and you didn't help me oh that's a really good point yeah do you forgive no oh <gasps> wow tutor unless you agree to tutor me next semester Ooh. ah love of friendship built on conditions yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm not paying you for the tutoring Oh, no. The fee, free. the fee was this lie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. I, I, I think <laughs> I think I forgive. Uh, but we did have to have a conversation about what the intentions were behind these actions, for sure. Yeah, I forgive, but it would change how I viewed them and our yeah. relationship. Yeah. Write a paper for me. Write the paper for you. Nerd. <laughs> Fucking nerd. <laughs> Fucking <laughs> loser ass nerd. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they were afraid of actually was like being too looking too smart like a Lindsay Lohan and Mean Girls situation maybe they have a crush on you and they want to act dumb so that they can get you to tutor them but that wouldn't make sense because they know that you yeah why don't they act smart and then tutor me the power dynamic is such that I'm like oh how will I pay for this tutoring perhaps a kiss I've seen porn <laughs> <laughs> I've seen teen dramas <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, this has been so amazing. Thank you so much. Where can people find you and follow your podcast? Oh, this has been so great. I I just thank you so much for having me. Um, You can find American Hysteria everywhere, wherever you get your podcasts, as we all say. Um, (laughs) And uh, let's see, Instagram at American Hysteria Podcast. Twitter. I'm always like, do you have to follow me there? But that's at Ameristeria. And then I'm on threads. But how do you tell people your threads? I still don't get it. American Hysteria podcast. I think you just click it. It's like a bunch of numbers and you'll find uh, like five things I said once. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, Instagram's definitely my spot. So yeah. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about unions. Just between us, it's time for topics. X, 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 baby, baby, baby. Oh, okay, just regs. What's that mean? Like regular, that's oh. firm, though. Yeah, this no, it was, it was like I, I jumped a little in my seat. I saw you. Can we do merch <laughs> that just says baby, 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 and it gets smaller and smaller. <laughs> All you think about now is merch. It's like your new hyperfixation. <laughs> merch, like a, a merch state of mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm hustling. I'm wheeling and dealing. Anything happens, and you're like, "Can that be merch?" <laughs> yeah, I'm. A, I'm. A, what, one thing people would love to say about me is I have a business mind. You do. You do. Oh, I guess so. I guess I do. Yeah. Oh, you meant that jokingly. I think yeah. you definitely have a business mind. You're always thinking about business. 
That's business, so sweet. business, business. We call him Business Gabe. <laughs> yeah, I'm a business man. <laughs> well, speaking of business, I thought it'd be fun to talk about unions. I know we had a topic segment on the WGA strike, but I wanted to talk about unions more generally because I think they're really important. And we're seeing a, a time where like a lot of unions might be going on strike at the same time which is sort of like historical mm-hmm. and exciting. Not since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but even like that UPS might be going on strike. Oh, all these other companies are looking to unionize. Like there's being more push for unionization in the tech world, like grinder employees mm-hmm. are trying to unionize. You know, Starbucks has been fighting unionization. Uh, I feel like Amazon's yeah. been trying to unionize. And so to start us off, I'd love to just read a little definition of what a union is. Oh, I love that you have notes. So well (laughs) organized and researched. Well, I did it uh, right after my workout this morning and was actively sweating onto my laptop. (laughs) I love this. I keep having water damage from me sweating onto my laptop and excessively Clorox wiping it. Wow. So you're really putting your blood sweat and germs I probably have cried on my laptop too. I was going to say, there's probably mm-hmm. some tears. <laughs> so unions are membership-driven democratic organizations governed by laws that require financial transparency and integrity, fair elections, and other democratic standards and fair representation of all workers. Joining together in unions enables workers to negotiate for higher wages and benefits and improve conditions in the workplace. So basically the idea that by joining together, you can sort of set standards within a certain industry in terms of payment, how how you're treated, what's expected of you. And by like joining together to fight for these rights, you have a way better chance of actually getting them instead of like individually negotiating pay or benefits or that kind of thing. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's funny when I remember when we were at BuzzFeed and they were trying to get us not to unionize. And it was this idea that we were like causing trouble or that like a union is causing us not to be a family and it's causing like trouble and like it's going to make everything worse at work or whatever. And then it's like that's never once been the case. I feel like the most toxic phrase to use in the workplace is we're a family. The worst. Yes. (laughs) The worst. Except in our workplace because we are a family. Well, because we do record at the Olive Garden. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. We should do it one day. There's one down the street. Yeah, we record live from the Olive Garden. (laughs) Oh, my God. That would be so funny. (laughs) And that's the sort of business mind that Melissa has. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, you know, my dad worked a lot in like employee benefits. And at one point he was sort of explaining that, like, once there were like more labor laws, like the the unions weren't as necessary because like, you know, there were things like children couldn't work or like certain stuff. But I think that. And so for a second in my life, I was like, oh, I wonder like if we need unions the way we used to. But now I'm like, yeah, we absolutely do, because there's like this assumption that like companies won't try to take advantage of workers and they absolutely do and will. And so like Mm -hmm. even within like, you know, even like how hard it's been to fight for like a livable minimum wage, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, the government has a minimum wage, which didn't used to exist. But if it's not a livable minimum wage, who cares that it's the law? Right. Right. 
And we're both the WGA strike and SAG is on strike. Mm-hmm. And ju- those are just our industries. And you've seen like the the uh, a lot of jobs getting replaced with AI, um, which is a big fear. A lot of jobs like not making the type of money that you would think that they would be making. You know, new technology comes up. I mean, even if unions were like, we didn't need them at a certain point, like new technology comes up and it's good to have these people that are fighting for the workers because who knows what kind of stuff, you know, no one expected streaming to be as big as it is Mm -hmm. and all of these people to need residuals and not get residuals for them. Like people were, I saw a tweet from Devin Sawa where he said that he was in Final Destination 5. They used old footage of him. He was not compensated for that and he had no idea it was happening. That's so fucking messed up. Yeah. To that dreamy, dreamy man. I know. How dare you come for my teen beat love? I know. I also think with everything going on in certain states, unionization is like even more important. Like one of the reasons that grinder employees are trying to unionize is like that they want to secure existing benefits like trans inclusive health care. Right. Because like you want, you know, like as parts of the country are getting like wackier and Mm -hmm. and more discriminatory yeah like and and discriminatory having like strong unions can hopefully you know potentially like prevent certain things from expanding to other states and and stuff like that um so should i be just using scruff or what am i on strike (laughs) from grinder it's just really hard because all these companies fight unions like they don't like you know like starbucks is like actively fighting to like not yeah. have unions happen it's yeah a lot of places i fi- i follow the tiktok of like the union workers or people trying to get starbucks to unionize and it's just like a mess like it feels like they're being because of the way that starbucks is fighting them on it they feel like like they're being very militant in like a negative way. And it's that's like how Starbucks Starbucks is trying to like make them seem like they're just asking for the most outrageous things that ever existed. What? Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, you're right. There's a lot of like anti-union propaganda that's yeah. like always used throughout and history, it, throughout history. Yeah, totally. And then with like UPS, um, they're asking for like the most basic things too, like put air conditioning in our trucks. Like, oh my God. That is, that's wild that they don't have, that they are, they're just riding around with just open trucks and how hot it is now. Like global warming is real and UPS is contributing to global warming. And then also like, you're not allowing your workers to be cool, like mm-hmm. pass out because it's so fucking hot. Yeah, I think the wage gap and the class gap has become like bigger and bigger i will say like economic gap and wage or class gap like like it's just become so clear that like the people that have all the profits are like hoarding and like want all the profits and whether that's out of like fear of some sort of apocalyptic future that they got a glimpse of with covid or whatever it is but like it's just gotten more and more clear that they're like we need to hoard everything and we and we don't care about these workers and everyone for themselves and like we because they could they could use 2% and just pay everything that everybody wants. Like in terms well, you're of talking about SAG. SAG and writer. So, and it's, the like, skill, but so yeah. it's like, you know, I, I feel like these, these, the gap between like CEO and worker has grown so, I mean, it's been steadily growing, but it's grown like to like a tipping point now. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, that 
fighting for unions is a really clear way to 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 gain rights. Yes. Like whereas like Occupy Wall Street was like a really awesome protest, but it like wasn't so clear like what the demands were. Yeah. Whereas I feel like when you unionize, there's a lot of clarity on what like everyone is collectively asking for. And it feels like a more like direct way and like productive way to get changes is by striking and by and by asking for and unionizing in those things. So I feel like if we can like get the spirit and the energy that like was Occupy Wall Street back, but like for unions, I feel like that could be really exciting and powerful. Occupy Wall Street had demands, but it just was like there was so much propaganda against them. Mm -hmm. And so like it was like it was like the first time that there was I mean, not the first time I'm sure this happened with like Vietnam protests and things like that. But there was such a concentrated effort to be like, these people are nuts. Which yeah, like is I happening think- now. You see it replicated now. There's such a con- I mean, articles in deadline and like these these mainstream concentrated efforts to be like these wacky actors and writers are being mm-hmm. so like selfish and and what uh, self what is the word like self-centered and privileged and blah, blah, blah. Like it's so clear. It's like a propaganda like publicist campaign. I, I saw a quote unquote news clip, but they were trying to. So there was um someone that worked like on the janitorial staff at one of the studios and they got laid off because there's not work for them right now Mm because things are slowed down. And the news was trying to turn this into like a sob story for people that aren't writers and actors. And it was very clear what the agenda was. And I was just like, this is, this is so messed up. So messed up. Yeah. It's been lucky to have access to while this is all going on and unionizing, like you were talking about looking at different TikToks. It's been good this time around to have social media, to be able to see Mm -hmm. what's going on and to have people be able to communicate and to have people like Brittany Nichols and Adam Conover explaining things and Michelle Hurd explaining things on social media. Like that's new, you know? And I also think like solidarity between unions across industries is Mm -hmm. really important. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I think that like the entertainment industry unions are getting really support the UPS Mm -hmm. union if they choose to strike. And yeah, there's been like rallies where everybody's there together. I know it's so cool. And I think it's I think it's just a really awesome opportunity for like solidarity from like the labor point of view versus like the all the higher ups trying to stifle us down mm-hmm. individually and go against each other. And hopefully the mm-hmm. other unions will strike, too. That would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting uh, topic. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, like, super relevant. It's, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's it's like one of those like terms like a union, like you hear it, but like diving into like what they actually mean, the history of them, I think is like really helpful and kind of reframes a lot of what's going on. It's just asking for what we are fairly owed. It's just asking for better work conditions, for protections. There are a lot of things that if you look at the demands of these unions, UPS, whatever it is, it's stuff that you would usually go, they don't already have that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just take a look at it and think about it through that lens. Yeah. Awesome. Well, why do we rate this episode? I rate it 11 out of 9. I Chelsea Weber Smith is very charming. <laughs> I will rate it 84 out of 61 unfriend. Yeah. 
I'll rate it 40 out of 30. Bitch, tutor me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you to Chelsea Weber Smith for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabe Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Montz. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok at, at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever. Yeah.